content warning. This episode discusses the following heavy topics. The suffering of Indigenous people from both the U.S. and Canada, child abuse, kidnapping, sexual assault, and death. If these are not topics that you feel comfortable listening to, this may be a good episode for you to skip. Welcome to Uncensored Sass, the podcast. My name is Julia. And I'm Rye. In this podcast, we discuss facts and our opinions on a variety of topics. This week, we are discussing Indigenous suffrage and residential schools. This week, we're doing things a little bit differently. I'm presenting the facts, and Julia's giving me her opinions. This is a very important topic for me to talk about. I grew up in the Catholic Church, and I am currently, and forever will be, a part of the LGBTQ community, and there are just lots of things that we were not taught, that never got talked about. And coming from one marginalized community and looking at another one and seeing how they suffer really, really affected me. So much so that even though I have not been an active member of the Catholic Church for nigh a decade, I have completely severed ties and removed any association with the church that had lingered. To what extent did you sever ties? I am now a registered Satanist. I publicly, to my family, came out as like, no, we're done. I'm done with the church, Catholic, Christian, all of it, I'm done. I do not want to be associated with it. You will never take, you will never like find me associated with it. I, I'm trying currently to break the habit of, oh my God and Jesus Christ as like exclamations because we don't provide free advertisement. And those for me, using those terms is free advertisement for the church. And so even though it's a habit that I've long had, I'm trying to break that. I am now a registered member of the Church of Satan. And the reason that I've chosen that is completely separate from today's topic. But I have gone as pretty, pretty much as far away from neo-Christ-centric religions as you possibly can. And it is because I was so, I was so devastated when, um when those graves were found and it's still devastating so many kids just taken from their families it's not okay and um I honestly didn't think this would be this difficult talking about it has helped this particular topic is very important to myself and so it was important to me that I were the one to bring the research forward for this episode. And with November being upon us, with Thanksgiving coming up, I felt it was relevant that we talk about Indigenous peoples and their suffrage 
and the pain that has been caused upon them. Obviously, I cannot get into everything. If I tried, it would be an injustice to the indigenous peoples and their suffrage. But what I can do is I can talk about what has been coming to light as of recently. And that is those residential schools between the United States and Canada, where so many children have been found. And if I can just talk about them and give them some light, some moment in any kind of spotlight, that would just bring so much joy to me. I feel like it should have been common knowledge that this had been happening, but as someone who was raised in the Catholic Church for quite a bit of my formative years, at least in the beginning of it, this was something that was never talked about. And even though growing up I knew there were atrocities, this coming to light was a big game changer for me. It became real. and. It's unfortunate that that's what it took to become real, but I'm no longer in my formative years. I'm 31 years old and things hit me differently. So we are going to be hearing from some survivors. Their voices can be heard in the resources linked down below. I will be talking about them and giving them their time please be sure to check the resources and go watch the videos that are linked. They are so important and their voices need to be heard. I cannot stress that enough. Please go watch those videos after you listen to the podcast and just listen. That's what they want. The survivors want to be listened to. So, with that being said, Julia, you remember not too long ago when five former residential schools had come up with over 1,300 indigenous children in mass graves? Yeah, I think I first learned about it in either June or July of this year, 2021. Yeah, it was very fresh. So these were all just like neo-Christian, neo-Catholic, neo-Christ-centric establishments how do you feel about it being so closely related to a, a Puritan colonial religion? So when I first learned about it, obviously it's very devastating that this has happened. I honestly only knew about what was happening in Canada. So that kind of, it hit a little bit differently because I had this perception of Canada I had this stereotypical idea that everybody in Canada was super nice, super sweet. And to find that the churches had such a deep impact up there to the point where they did this to people, it just made me feel like it doesn't matter where you live. This kind of thing is going to happen when people with power are going to exert it in a way that harms others. And hearing that it had something to do with a church, honestly, it didn't really surprise me. Because I hear about that stuff with different pockets of religion all the time with a lot of the podcasts I listen to. So it just, for me, it was like, really? Again? Rather than like, how dare you? How could you? It's more like, well, I wouldn't expect it from anyone else. So the thing is, is that the church was put in this position of power by Congress. And I'm going to take a, a direct quote from the Washington Post. 
1819, Congress enacted the Civilization Fund Act, which authorized the president, quote, in every case where he shall judge improvement in the habits and conditions of such Indians practicable to employ capable persons of good moral character to introduce tribes to the arts of civilization. And then in 1824, the Bureau of Indian Affairs was established to administer the fund which paid Christian missionaries to civilize the Indians. D does that surprise you at all? That they were paid by essentially Congress to do this? It pisses me off. It pisses me off that even in 1819, the idea of church and state was ignored. And we had been a country for how long? And then the idea that they had mentioned Indians, I mean... You can go back and be like, oh, it was a different time. We were a different people. But we knew they weren't Indians then. We knew that then. Like, fuck whoever said that. Yeah. And then to say civilize the Indians. Like, wow. Fuck you, buddy. Yeah. And so that, that goes into like the rhetoric of the time where they were seen as more animalistic than actually humans. And, you know, capable of complex thought and emotion. And this is something that they were trying to see. Whether they were capable of complex thought and emotion. Whether they could survive in this high society that they determined was the standard. Can I just say really quick, and I'm not devil's advocating at all. I just want to say, to put it in perspective, this was pre-Civil War. So we still had slaves. Yeah. So... The idea that we were treating them as less than human does not surprise me. The fact that it involved the church surprises me, but it's still, like, less than so because we were built on, like, a Puritan Christian society. That was kind of what our whole country was founded upon. A lot of our principles come from that. Mm -hmm. Surprises me less than it should, honestly. But the fact that we weren't treating them the way people should be treated while we had literal people as slaves doing the hard work we refuse to do mm -hmm. doesn't surprise me. Yeah. It pisses me off, but it doesn't surprise me. So what was happening was that these white Christian missionaries and the white Congress that was dealing with all of this was seeing that anything other than white people were less than. So they had convinced themselves and justified and they'd convinced the people that they are animals. And they look like you and me, but they are animals. So what we need to do is we need to take these children from their families to see if we can make them into respectable adults. And we're going to teach them our language. We're going to teach them our Puritan religion. We're going to teach them our Eurocentric way of life. Because at the time, that's what, that's what they knew. We had barely been a country and... All that we knew was this Eurocentric way of life that we had just, you know, left. And so in pulling them from their families and taking them, essentially kidnapping them, legally, legally kidnapping these children, they take them to these schools in both Canada and the United States. And they were 
taught our languages, taught our religion, taught to dress the way that we dressed. And they were taught that conformity was survival. And if they did not conform or could not conform, they would be punished. And sometimes, probably most of the time, these children did not survive those punishments. But how does it make you feel to, to know that, like, these children were legally kidnapped? Like, what, what's your thought? What do you think about this? I think back to the boys' schools, the places where kids of privilege or white ethnicity, where they went when their families fucked up or when they got in trouble. And the horrific schools and the horrific conditions those people were put in. Or the fact that, like, asylums, which were places that were essentially meant to help people, how awful that ended up being. Yeah. And so the fact that these children were legally kidnapped and then taken away, essentially mistreated, and I don't want to go into the details because I'll let you do that, but then they didn't always come out as a well-structured person. Mm -hmm. Again, it doesn't surprise me because of the other situations where this has happened. This isn't to belittle what has happened to them. Mm -hmm. But again, it's not an isolated incident. Mm -hmm. This has been happening for hundreds of years. And this has been happening to all kinds of people. This was the type of world where if a woman wasn't conforming to what she was supposed to do as a man's wife... You could put her in an asylum and say, she's insane. She will not take care of the baby. Mm -hmm. She will not have sex with me every night. She yeah. will not clean the house. Yeah. She wants to go out and have a job and be independent. Yeah. Put her in an asylum. You know, and this is just some average woman, you know? This is a guy who would go to war and come home and have PTSD and be considered insane. Yeah. And those boarding schools that you were mentioning where, like, the boy, the all-boys school or all that stuff where they'd go and, like, they're problematic. They did that to white people. They were shitty to white people. Like, what makes anyone think that they're going to be any nicer to people of color? Also, one thing that I wanted to talk about when you were talking about, like, it happened this century. Like, it happened in the last hundred years. I just want to I just want to let you know um, that Canada and the United States maintained its own system of 367 Indian boarding schools from 1860 until 1978. The two countries' systems were completely intertwined and Canada had adopted the model that the United States had perfected. This is from the Washington Post. But that, uh, 1978. That pisses me off. Because we're looking back in perspective. We're looking back on the civil rights movement of the 1950s, which comparatively was only 20 years earlier. Uh-huh. For people that were literal slaves. Yeah. The fact that, like, segregation was still a thing in the 1950s. So a school system for people that weren't even considered people... For a large period of time, people that were here prior to us coming in, that we tried to eliminate in order to make our country, that continued on for so long that they were so easily swept under the rug and not talked about, yeah. and that this system continued for years, centuries, decades, however long, 
And that we only just got rid of it in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Almost the 80s. As infuriating as it is to find this out, again, it doesn't surprise me. It's just how typical. How typical of our country, how typical of our religious establishments Mm -hmm. that we would just do this to somebody and then only just now be finding out about it. Oh, yeah. It is insane. Like, both of my parents were children. If we had been in this system, if if my parents had been indigenous people and I had been an indigenous person, I would be dealing with generational trauma given to them by their parents and it would come from them to me because my parents if they would survive would have been survivors of what is now considered a type of genocide i don't think there's any better word to really describe it you had said the schools had only just been unestablished in the 1970s yeah whereas the civil rights movement for the african-american population only was coming to a head in the 1950s and they were still fighting for their rights as people and their ability to be heard and seen as a person as opposed to an other Mm -hmm. in the 1970s when this was happening they they were still doing the black panther movement was still happening yeah and to an extent still is with the whole black lives matter but not quite the same way so Let's go back to how the rest of the world viewed the others, you know? Let's go back to the 1940s and 1930s. It's not dissimilar. This, it's so easy to go back in time and see all of these injustices happening. Mm -hmm. Whereas we look at what happened to the Jewish people during the Holocaust, we're like, that's a genocide. Yeah. But then you look at what happened with the indigenous people and you can't say the same word. It's the same thing. It's genocide. So to further drive home how much of a genocide it is, according to the Washington Post, now this is all in the same Washington Post article. In the 19th and 20th centuries, 150,000 children were separated from their family. That's over 150,000 children kidnapped. Children were subject to torture, trauma, and death to, and I quote, kill the Indian child. Their goal was to kill the Indian in the child. Save the human, kill the Indian. Because for some reason, they thought that the vessels of these people was salvageable, but not anything else. That they could change them. It seems like the more passive-aggressive version of what was happening in the Holocaust. And I hate to call it passive-aggressive, Because also, I don't want to diminish the suffrage of either party. No, and I think that the important distinction is that the length of time that what was happening to the indigenous people in Canada and the U.S., as opposed to the amount of time that the Holocaust took and the amount of lives it took, the major difference between the two is that one of them wanted to kill off people. They didn't want to salvage anything about them. They just wanted them dead. As opposed to the other one, they just wanted to kill them in spirit and convert them to a Christian person, what they considered to be a good Christian human. A good stand-up citizen. So, to talk about the numbers, between one-third and 40% of the Indian boarding schools in the United States were operated by Christian denominations. 
And these churches believed that civilizing and converting indigenous people to Christianity was their only hope of salvation from what they called a dying culture. Now, for me, this culture was dying because it was being murdered. But no one wanted to say that because that's uncivilized. That's not legal. That's just crazy to me. Converting indigenous people to Christianity was their hope of salvation from a dying culture, as opposed to preserving the dying culture. Yeah. I want to move really fast to some survivors. So there's a video on, on YouTube, Stolen Children, Residential Schools, Survivors Speak Out. In that video, one of the survivors, her name is Alice Little Deer, she was in a residential school for eight years in Canada. And when she graduated, because you could graduate as a survivor from these schools, and she went on to have her own family, she talks about how her kids went through the residential school system. And one thing she mentions is that the way that they coerce the parents is when the child is five or six, social services would show up with a principal from one of these schools and they would come to recruit one of these children. So if you had a child around four, five, and six, those are your formative years. Those are like the most formative years you have. So between two and seven is when your brain develops all your language. So they picked them around those age so that they could teach them English and stop them from using their native languages. So what would happen is when they graduate, so many of them would go home and then they can no longer relate to their family. They can no longer communicate to their family. They have essentially sent home a Christian carbon copy of who they took. So they're essentially alienating these families from each other via this erasure of language and religion. And so what would happen is that they would come up, if the mother had older children, they would threaten the mother that if we don't get this child and we don't put this child into the system, you will never see all of your children. We will take all of your children, not just this one. And so then the mother has to pick between all of her children or the one. And one thing that they mention is that the determination of wealth and social status in indigenous culture, at least in their particular, not necessarily overall, is family size. They're big family oriented. And so it would have been harder for a mom to separate from all of her children as opposed to just one. On a personal note, I just want to mention that I was in foster care as a child and my mom lost us because she had an abusive boyfriend. So what happened was my brother had just turned 17 right before I went into foster care and I was on the verge of turning 15. And he didn't live with my mom when she was with her boyfriend when he became abusive and we ended up being taken from her. Because my brother wasn't with us, she didn't end up losing him. She lost me and my two sisters. And we were the youngest ones. So it reminds me a lot of that. Mm -hmm. And it's difficult because she spent three years fighting for us. Whereas opposed to my older brother who got to stay home because he didn't move with her. He stayed with my grandparents when we chose to move with her and this man and the fact that she had to spend 
three years fighting for us, despite anything else she was dealing with, that she essentially had to choose that these were the more important children to her. Yeah. Because she already had my brother. I can only imagine how my brother must have felt that he either wasn't important enough to fight for or that he was important enough to not be taken. Yeah. You know, imagine being that child that was either taken away from your family, like you were discarded, that you didn't, they didn't care enough about you, that they just gave you away, Mm -hmm. or being the child that was important enough to stay. Yeah. That guilt, that survivor's guilt that that child must have felt. Yeah. It reminds me a lot of my own personal story. And I just think it's fucked up that any of this happened, let alone the amount of trauma it caused every individual family member as opposed to the entire culture. Yeah, oh, that's a really good point. I will be touching on the foster system and the adoption of indigenous infants later in this episode. But one of the survivors, Madeline Dion Stout, she's 62 when the video came out, and she spent three years in a residential school. She mentioned the ability to see her parents once she had been taken to the residential schools was very rare. She only has one distinct memory that she can pull out of when she saw her mom after being taken. She said that parental visits were very rare. And she says, the only time I saw my mom, I saw her get out of the carriage to come see me. And she had cried so hard, she induced a bloody nose. And... That just speaks so much volume as to the trauma and the abuse that these children went through. It does seem uncharacteristic that they would allow these parents to come see their kids. The podcast that I had sent you, they talked about something similar to this. But one of the things they had mentioned was the indigenous people weren't very well off, which is unfortunate. Yeah. But one of the side effects to being not very well off, even to this day, is that they don't have proper transportation. Yeah. One of my questions, I guess, to you is how much of the family's inability to visit was the school itself as opposed to the parents just not having the transportation to go to this school? So I think that maybe it's kind of like half. So I think the locations of these schools were very on purpose So I would imagine that these schools are about as far away from the families as you could possibly get just for that purpose. So it's not like they could just walk into town and go see their kid. So I think that does play a role. But I also don't think that visits would have been made available because you have to like schedule these visits. You can't just show up. So I imagine that like these schedules were very, very tight very hard to get a visit scheduled. It reminds me of prison. Like what you hear and see about prison when you have to have people on your visitation list. They have to come on specific days. The prison's so far away that not everybody on your visitation list can come see you. Yeah. It's an unfortunate comparison, but I think it's pretty accurate because what else would you use to describe it? These kids were taken against their will. They couldn't leave when they wanted to. They were forced to do what the school told them to do. And they couldn't go home to their parents when they wanted to. Their parents had to come see them on particular times and days, sometimes traveling miles upon miles. Yeah, and I think before anyone who's possibly listening to this goes, well, people in prison committed crimes. 
You have to understand, at the time, being indigenous was a crime. Practicing your native tongue was a crime. Practicing your native religion was a crime. So I think it is a pretty fair, although albeit unfortunate, comparison. The third and final survivor, Raymond Mason. He is 62 at the time of the interview, and he spent 12 years in the system. And corporal punishment was very popular. If anyone was caught speaking their native tongue, they would pull their tongue out of their mouth and pinch it. I don't know to the severity. He mentions having his tongue pulled out of his mouth and pinched as a form of punishment. And I would beg to even make the comparison because the first thing he mentions when you see him in this video, and again, I highly recommend watch all the videos that are posted in the resources. But one thing that these missionaries would do is they would teach the children how to clean themselves, how to bathe, how to shower, what is proper hygiene. Well, when you've got these missionaries and you've got these children and these children are vulnerable and naked in these showers, he doesn't go into detail, which is perfectly reasonable, but he describes being taken advantage of. And I'll kind of let your mind go naturally where it's going to go, but that also is very reminiscent of the kind of abuse you would find in a prison system. There is a level of power difference, and the abuse within that power difference can be rampant. So the reason I mentioned it's like a prison is because in our standards, they didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. And yet they were treated like criminals. The same way we treat criminals today, they were treated like criminals for just existing as a person, which I think is an important distinction because you go back into the mindset of people back then and it just shows you that even though we've mentioned that schools and establishments and the way of life back then didn't do justice by even people of white ethnicity, that just existing as a person in this culture, you were subject to this kind of behavior. You were subject to this mistreatment and abuse. Yeah. Which I think is an important distinction that not everybody of white ethnicity was subject to the same thing that these people were for just existing. Yeah. In the cases of white people going into asylums or white people going into these boy schools or girl schools that mistreat them, they had to do something specific to go there. They had to either be in an unfortunate circumstance or commit a crime or be dropped off there by a loved one. It wasn't like they were going house to house, pulling people out of their houses the way they were with these indigenous people. And that's an important thing to remember. Yeah, some of it was circumstantial where they could not control it, where the ravaged wife is mad and angry and can't control her emotions because her husband is cheating and doesn't want to admit to it. And instead of admitting to it, he calls her crazy and they believe the man and the husband over the wife. There's a lot of factors that go into that. But like, you got to think like that's how we treated our white people. It kind of comes back to they were treated like shit. You can only imagine how people of color were treated in those same situations. Yeah. And we're still living in a world where there are several countries to this day that it's still outlaw being homosexual. Yeah. 
just being homosexual, you can be in prison. You can be sentenced to the death penalty. So I just think that that's an important thing to note. It's not like we're coming from this place of utopia where everything's perfect and we can look back and be like, well, we don't commit those crimes today, so you're bad because there's still shit, fucking shit like this happening today. Yeah. And here's a thing. Generational trauma exists. And even after these schools were shut down, there are survivors alive today who will never be okay. And in their formative years, the only thing that they knew and understood was corporal punishment. They were never taught how to cope. So they turned to alcohol and drugs. And that can be found in the other YouTube video, How the U.S. Stole Thousands of Native American Children. They talk about generational trauma in the way that the children of the survivors were raised and how that abuse and that trauma was trickled into the survivor's children. Something that Raymond, the aforementioned survivor, goes on to say is that it's not the survivors who are committing suicide because of the trauma. It is their children because of the generational trauma being passed down to them. That's a pretty big deal where it's not only affecting the people who actually lived it, but all of their kin and their lineage to follow. I was looking at some of the sources that you had listed. And while the Washington Post article is from this year, it's from after the graves were discovered in August. Yes. The two videos you posted, the one from Vox is from 2019. Uh-huh. And the Stolen Children one is from 2015. Yeah. So it's not like this is new information. The discovery of the graves is new. Yeah. But the information about the residential schools, it's not new. We've known about it for years. And even though these two videos are only within the last decade, we've still known about it a decent amount of time. And I think it's still important to talk about it as more information comes to light. Yeah, that's a really good point. These videos are from years before the graves were found. And one of the unfortunate parts is that it took finding these children to bring this topic and this issue into mainstream media, where journals like the Washington Post would say something about it. And to where it ends up on everyone's Twitter feed. It ends up on everyone's Facebook page. It ends up on everyone's For You page on TikTok. It ends up everywhere because people are buzzing. People are talking about it because it's so radically terrible that these children were found. I mean, it's amazing that they were found and that we can start an investigation. But it took that traumatic event of finding them to get people to talk about it on a grander scale. And just to kind of put this out there, we're not jumping on a hype train to talk about this. We're talking about this because it's just now coming to light, as opposed to knowing about it for years. As Rye had mentioned, she was a part of the Catholic Church growing up and has only just recently disconnected herself from it because of what's coming about. Yeah, that being said, I didn't have... A platform in 2015, 2019. I only started developing a platform in 2020. And so there's no guarantee that I haven't said anything. The only guarantee is that this coming to light was so devastating to me. And really, the entire time, Indigenous creators have been crying and begging for us to listen to them. But because of algorithms, nothing 
showed up on at least any of my social media. And so now I have a small platform and I don't care what size my platform, as long as I have one, I will stand on it and I will cry out to the abyss about this. And I will use what platform I have to talk about this because it is important. I do try not to trample on the voices of indigenous creators. So I also don't want the clout from it. I don't care about that. I just want, I want the conversation to happen. I want this topic to get in front of as many people as possible. It is important that these things get talked about. And it is devastating that these atrocities have to be literally unburied for us to talk about them. Yeah, usually that's just how throughout history things have happened. These big traumatic events happen and then we move forward in the future to prevent them from happening again and continue the conversation yeah. and give people the representation and the justice that they need. And I'm sure we're still looking through and there's still an investigation going on within these residential schools and we'll continue to find children and these families that may have all but lost hope about their loved ones might be reunited via DNA testing and identifying of these bodies. So they may get that closure that they desperately need. It doesn't make anything less tragic, but to know is sometimes less painful than to wonder. Let's go back to the foster system really fast. Because something I started to mention earlier, but I wanted to mention it correctly. After the popularization of the residential schools, there was like a die down and then there was a wave of, well, if that's so bad, then why don't we just adopt these kids out to white families? And you can see this information in the uh, How the U.S. Stole Thousands of Native American Children. What would happen is that these women would get pregnant and then either while they're pregnant or while they're about to give birth they're being urged and coerced into adopting their child out so that their child can have what was called a better life a better start either they get adopted into white families or they get to live on the reserve which was intentionally made with terrible living conditions so no mom would want their child to grow up that way without fresh potable water, without food readily available. So it's like you could either raise your child in this way below poverty system or you could adopt them out so they could have a chance at a better life. And then, as you probably know, children are massively abused when in the foster and adoption system. So that was another way that they ripped children away from their families. Why would you want to do that to children? Yeah, and one thing, I would name the survivors in the, the U.S. stole Native children in that video, but I didn't see any names, and no one introduced themselves as per my recollection of the video. But one of the survivors of being adopted out was told on the regular, you have running water, you have food, you should consider yourself lucky. And otherwise, they were severely abused 
emotionally, mentally, physically, but they were told to be thankful because at least they didn't live on the reservation. And it's that kind of behavior in parents versus children that makes children resentful or it makes children think that they're the problem. You know, it sets up this ability to look inward and see a problem. Because if you're ungrateful after having all of these privileges, all of this stuff given to you, then you must be the problem. As opposed to there is a problem and you're addressing it. Yeah, one of them mentions that they grew up thinking that they were the problem because they weren't grateful enough to their foster parents, to their adoptive parents. Yeah. And then there's the struggle once you're an adult. Once you're an adopted adult as an indigenous person and the family that you've moved in with is white and Christian, you've got no hope of having any organic ties to your culture and your people because from birth you have been taught English as well as Christianity and Catholicism. And imagine being an indigenous adult of adoption and trying to find your roots, trying to connect with your culture. Raymond Mason mentions he saw someone graduate at 16, go home to his family, and because he was so out of touch with the language and with the culture, he, upon his own volition, came back to the residential school for another year because at that point, that was the only place that he felt like home. In a different way, it sort of reminds me of how, like, when people spend most of their life in some sort of institution, whether it be foster care or prison, that when they're finally released, they do something to go back. They either commit a crime or they continue to live with their foster parents or they'll go from one institution to the next because that's all they know. Mm-hmm. And being on the outside, being separate from that is so much of a struggle that they can't cope. And it's a similar mindset to people who come out of North Korea and they start living in other countries that aren't as strict that they almost can't cope. It's a trauma response. It's not they want to be manipulated. They want to be injured. They want to be abused. They don't necessarily want that, but it's a trauma response because their mind can't cope with what they're currently dealing with as opposed to what they grew up dealing with. Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's like a level of like Stockholm Syndrome where you almost find comfort in your abuser. I mean, I'm not a psychiatrist, so I can't say specifically what the syndrome is. I just know from personal experience and from what I've read online, for somebody to deal with these schools and come back out into the real world only to then want to go back to it, it's not like they prefer that as opposed to what they imagine living outside would be. Yeah. It's that they don't know how to cope with it. Yeah, and that's a really good point. And I think that's why he brings it up. As per the point of what they were trying to accomplish, it perfectly illustrates how successful they were in the long run. They were able to remove that boy's history, that boy's language, that boy's culture. They were able to scrub it from him to the point where he could no longer communicate with anyone in his family. And he felt uncomfortable in the company of his own family because of how he had spent his years in the residential school. And going back to the adoption really fast, in the video, it doesn't mention that it actually has ended. So what it does mention is that 
even today, or at least at the time of the video's creation, an indigenous baby, an indigenous child, is four times as likely to be adopted out as opposed to a Caucasian one. Which is still mind-boggling statistic. I mean, it's not to say, like, oh, they should have just adopted white children. It doesn't feel like it was as participatory on the mother's side as it was the adopter's side. It felt like the mothers were coerced. Yeah, I think that definitely is the case. Yeah, it feels like they went up to some young, impressionable mother with her first or second child saying, like, do you want this life for your kids? And told her or convinced her that their way would be better. And it sounds like it wasn't, from what you're telling me. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, who are they to make that distinction? Yeah, and sometimes coercion is also thinly veiled threats. Right? So the coercion could also be, like, you have one child already. Do you want the life that that child has for this child? Do you want that child to struggle by just existing the way it does, the way the way your first one does? Or also, we could adopt both of them out. To hear that the extent of it, to hear the impact it's had, and to hear that people still do it to this day is infuriating. Mm -hmm. I just kind of want to give you a couple terms, and I want to get how you feel about it. So... I'm going to give you a name and then the person's title. So the person's name is Duncan Campbell Scott. And his position was the Department Superintendent of Indian Affairs. Um, oh, okay. I'm just curious, like, they made whole departments within the government to deal with this. That's how ingrained these institutions were. It wasn't that they just handed them off to the church and was like, have a free run. No, they were fully involved through these departments. Yeah, I think once you elaborated a little bit, I was like, am I supposed to be reacting to his name? I was just putting his name out there because it was given. Yeah. But Department Superintendent of Indian Affairs. There was a whole department for this. <sighs> I feel like that's annoying. Like, I get, I don't know which would be more annoying. The fact that, like, they just let the church do whatever they wanted, or the fact that it was still highly regulated. Because, again, you'd mentioned that it was through the government. It wasn't like some church affiliate did this on their own. Yeah. The government allowed for it, right? Mm -hmm. So then to hear that it was like they made this, they allowed this in, like, 1819, and that they had an entire department, like, dedicated to it, is one of the things that's like, the separation of church and state is not there. No. So how deep does it go, right? It's like we're going down a rabbit hole here. Yeah. How much of the government was involved in what the church did? How many people in the government knew about what was going on? And did they just turn a blind eye? Did they allow it? Was this what they wanted? I can only imagine that the rhetoric then, although probably massively worse, is not too dissimilar from the rhetoric today about people of color whether it be people in Black Lives Matter and that movement, or immigrants from Southern and Central America, most specifically Mexico and any further Hispanic countries. I feel like the rhetoric would be very similar in tone, although probably significantly worse than that. So I think it was everywhere. I think it had to have been. 
Like, these were people's platforms that they were being elected on. Yeah. You'd mentioned it wasn't all Catholic. Do you happen to know any specifics about the other schools, the other religions? So I wanted to make sure that I preface that it wasn't all Catholic because although Catholicism and Christianity are very similar and they've done pretty much the same thing. So there were Catholic and Christian schools. It just depends on like who was running the area. And it's really just those two. That's why I wanted to be specific. I know a lot of the indigenous cultures of Latin and Central America dealt with something similar. When the Spanish Inquisition came in Mm -hmm. and brought Catholicism with them. Yeah. So a lot of culture was lost there. And a lot of the people that lived in what is now the southern and western United States traveled the Mexican-American border that is known today in a lot of their journeys in going back and forth to visit family. Some of them had tribes and cultures and family up in the U.S. and some of them had them in Mexico and Southern America. Yeah. So journeys were made in that way and when the borders were established they were essentially cut off. The people in the U.S. became Native Americans and the people in Mexico became Mexicans. Yes. And so on and so forth. Yes. No, even though places like California, Arizona, were very much a part of those people. Yeah. So you do have people like Navajos and stuff in New Mexico and Arizona, but then you also have people that consider themselves Mexican or Mexican-American that have been in the U.S. since before it was established. Yeah. So there's kind of like a very thin line. It really depends on the individual and that person's culture and family as to where they draw the line. But in terms of the natives to the U.S., you have similar patterns as to what we did with the the uniform schools as opposed to what had happened with the Spanish Inquisition and basically teaching people Spanish as opposed to their native language and forcing them to be Catholic. Yeah, absolutely. We definitely kicked them off their land and drew invisible lines in the sand and said, this is ours, you can have that, we don't want it. And, you know, we're still dealing with the repercussions of that today. The names of the survivors mentioned in this episode are Alice, Little Deer. At the time of her interview, she was 78 years old, and she had spent eight years in a residential school in Canada. Raymond Mason, 62 years old at the time of his interview, 12 years in the residential system in Canada. Madeline Dion Stout, age 62 at the time of her interview, spent three years in the residential school. Their voices are important. Their stories are integral. Please go watch the Stolen Children Residential School Survivors Speak Out to hear their stories from their own mouths. The stories of these survivors is imperative, and we cannot squash them. They cannot be silenced. We need to keep talking about this. We will link all of the resources. Mm -hmm. We will either put it in the YouTube description or both the show notes for the podcast. Either way, they will be there available to people. This has been the Uncensored Sass Podcast. My name is Julia, 
And if you're interested in finding me on other platforms, my name on Twitch is L-O-S-E-R-B-I-B-I. That's Loser BB. Again, L-O-S-E-R-B-I-B-I. You can also find me on Twitter at L-O-S-E-R-B-I-B-I-I. That's Loser BB with two eyes. And my name is Rye. You can find me also on Twitch at The Okayist. Uh, I'm the same name on Twitter. It's T-H-3, O-K-A-Y-E-S-T. Episodes come out four days earlier on FanHouse. So if you head over to fanhouse.app backslash The Okayist, then you can subscribe there. Any subscriptions there just helps the podcast. If not, you can find the podcast every other Wednesday on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you get your podcast. Wherever you consume content. Please consider giving us a follow and a comment. Let us know how you feel about it and please give us a five-star review. We enjoy doing this and talking about these harder topics. Bye! Bye.